Hi, you're listening to Texas 1031. This is a true crime podcast specifically pertaining to cities in Texas. In case this is your first time listening, though, 1031 is a police code for crime in progress. And obviously, it just so happens to be the date of Halloween. Um, But we're your hosts, Cassie and Hannah. If you guys want to contact us or check out our social media, head on over to our website, texas1031podcast.com. There you will find links to all of our social media, as well as links to listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Remember, the name of our website and social media accounts have no dashes, no spaces, no capitalizations, or numbers, just all spelled out. And last but not least, if you are on iTunes, please rate, review, and subscribe before you finish the episode. That would mean a lot to us. Every week, we will bring you two murder cases that we'll both independently discuss um this week we have one in kind of deer park houston and the other in amarillo thank you i forgot i did (laughs) um but hey we hope you guys super enjoy this week's episode and thanks so much for listening Hey, it's our Halloween 2017 episode. We tried to theme it-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, so Cassie's murder is actually Halloween-related. Yep. Mine just uh, fell on the 31st. Um, recommendations this week. You got some? I do. I have at least one. I think it's just one. Um, the movie, on, it's, right on, it's on Netflix right now. It's called The Invitation. Uh, Hannah says she's seen it before. Our friend Josh recommended it to me. I'm so glad I watched it, though. It had so many twists and turns that you definitely don't see coming. Like, my boyfriend and I try to ruin movies, you know, as we're watching them and just guess what's going to happen. And we were floored. Beautiful movie. Yeah. Very well done. Speaking of well done, everyone's already watched it by now, but I just binged Mindhunters yesterday, 10 hours worth, technically. Oh. Yeah. Um, it's awesome. I know everyone has given good feedback on it. All the information that, like, I took away from it and, like, being able to kind of, like, like you said with the movie, like, uh, guess what's happening and, like, I was able to kind of, like, in my head diagnose people and, like, figure out who did what. Okay, so before we get into the murders, I wanted to just mention this briefly, not trying to harp on this for too long, but I did receive a few requests to do some cases, so I just kind of wanted to like address this now, but I asked Cassie about it, about like kind of how she felt, and I think for at least now, we're just kind of go going maybe case by case with this, but um, we're going to maybe try and stay away-ish from the more widely known cases. Um, I wrote down just a few um, that I like kind of heard tossed in there. The Yogurt Shop Murders, Dean Coral, uh, the disappearance of uh, Amber Hagerman, I believe is how you pronounce it, the Amber Alert girl. Um, Brandon Lawson, he's also one that I've um, noticed a lot of people doing. Um, Just because these are Texas ones, I know that they are popular, but I feel like for a few reasons that we probably won't go there, at least for right now, is that I don't feel like we could personally bring anything new to the table. We also don't have that much time to delve into these because there's so much detail usually with them or there's a lot of theorizing with them. Um, but I feel like there's other podcasts that have done them that would do a better job um, that you could just go listen to. So mm-hmm. we're going to maybe try and stick with stuff that's uh, a little more unknown or different. Yeah. Um, there's, I mean, we don't have the time right now to dedicate yeah. to doing these stories justice. And not that we're not doing the ones that we pick justice, but... I just feel like if a podcast like Last Podcast on the Left, who does amazing hours and hours and hours and hours of research, and they very well um, produce, yeah. If someone did, like, I, 
I'm not at that point in my even like setting aside time to research. Yeah position so <laughs> i would recommend the generation y podcast i know pretty 99 percent certain the ones that i listed they have done okay. so if you want a good one to go listen to if you if anybody cares yeah, if anyone's listening not <laughs> um okay so it's cassie's turn to go first this week yeah. so Tell me, tell me your Halloween murder. So I'm so glad that you reminded me that I love this one because I probably would have been in a insane mental block just, you know, but I do freaking love this guy. I hate him so much, but I definitely felt this as a kid, like the effects of what he did. Um, so this is supreme piece of shit. I actually wrote that down. Ronald Clark O'Brien, AKA the man who killed Halloween. And not to be confused, sorry to interrupt you, but they also have him listed as the Candyman, yeah. which is like super false. That yeah. that was Dean Coral, so yeah. don't get it confused. Cause, yeah. Oh, yeah. I feel like that was just kind of sloppy media, like the Candyman's like, no, nope, yeah. Candyman has been dead for a few years now. Um, yeah, fuck that guy. But okay, so Ronald Clark O'Brien was born on October 19th in 1944. Um, he lived with his wife, Denine O'Brien, and his two kids, Timothy and Elizabeth. Timothy was born in 1966 and Elizabeth in 1969. Um, he lived with them in Deer Park, Texas, which is just outside of Houston, kind of near Pasadena. Um, so it's in that general area, kind of South Houston. Um, he was an optician at Texas State Optical, which is in the Sharpstown area of Houston, Texas. Um, he was also the deacon at Second Baptist Church. I'm not sure if it's the Second Baptist Church. If you're from Houston or even Texas, you know about this giant baptidome. Called the South. <laughs> um, he also sang in its choir, and he was in charge of their local bus program. So that's Ronald Clark O'Brien. One rainy night, Halloween night to be specific, in 1974, so 1031-74, Ronald took 8-year-old Timothy and 5-year-old Elizabeth out trick-or-treating. His neighbor, Jim Bates, and his son joined as well. Um, they were trick-or-treating in a suburb close to where they all lived, um, and they came upon a dark house. They, the kids were kind of like super into trick-or-treating at every house. So even if it was dark, all the lights are out, they still knocked. Um, no answer came. So the kids and Jim reluctantly ran off to the next house. But Ronald stayed behind, I guess, on the premise that, I don't know, if there was candy here, he was going to get it. Like, super dad. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I just, I, why would, mm. Questions and theories. Um, so Ronald stayed behind, and then he caught up later with five 21-inch pixie stick tubes, saying that someone had indeed been home and handed him the pixie sticks through the door. He handed him out, handed them out to his two children, Timothy and Elizabeth, Jim's son, and a couple of children that he recognized from their church group. So uh, Timothy wanted one piece of candy before bed, and Ronald kind of coaxed him into choosing the pixie stick. The powder was kind of stuck. It was jammed a little bit. So Ronald helped Timothy dislodge it and even went as far as to helping the young child dip his head back as to uh, allow some of the powder to flow into his mouth easier. 
Um, He complained pretty immediately that it tasted bitter, so his dad gave him some Kool-Aid to wash it down. Timothy immediately started complaining of a stomach ache, and then he began violently vomiting and convulsing. Um, He was transported by an ambulance to a local hospital, but before he even arrived, he was dead, less than an hour from the point that they stopped trick-or-treating. Um, Harris County prosecutor Mike Hinton was working the police station that night, and he said he was called by the Pasadena Police Department, um, saying that there was a child that was sick after consuming some Halloween candy, but he died en route to the hospital. So this was now a homicide case. Um, he, so he was called by the Pasadena Police Department. He worked for Harris County. He then called Dr. Joseph A. I'm totally going to mispronounce this. Um, it's J-A-C-H-I-M-C-Z-Y-K. Oh, so he was on forensic files. Yeah, <laughs> he must have been. He had to have been. So um, Dr. Joseph J., we'll call him, who is the chief medical examiner or was the chief medical examiner of Harris County. Um, the doctor asked what his breath smelled like. Hinton called the morgue and reported back almonds. The doctor said, cyanide. That's, it's cyanide. The amount of cyanide Timothy ingested was enough to kill two grown men. The tests of the pixie stick also stated that the top two inches contained traces of the poison. So, obviously, the cyanide was jammed into the top of the tube, resealed, and then consumed by Timothy. Um, they were sealed together by staples, which actually saved one of the boys. Um, miraculously, the police were able to confiscate all the remaining pixie sticks from the children. And one little boy was trying to eat one right before he went to bed. He like hit it with him and he couldn't get the staples undone. So he gave up and went to sleep. He would have died in his sleep, which is so sad. Um, So, you know, everyone's freaking out. They think that someone was passing out poison candy to their children. Uh, I mean, five children had poison candy, so kind of a frenzy. Panic ensued, so cops jumped all over this. Um, And one of the first things they did was take Ronald back to the neighborhood. Um, The police took him there, and they asked him to please identify the house that he got the candy from. He said he couldn't remember, though. Um, he didn't see a face. It was just a hairy arm extended through the door. Um, so investigators then became pretty suspicious. A few days went by and then they went back and were very firm with him, which of course jogged his memory. Uh, Ronald then pointed out the house that he got these mystery pixie sticks from. The man who lived there was a man named Courtney Melvin. Um, his wife and daughter... He testified that his wife and daughter were already in bed. They ran out of candy early and they went to bed. Um, He was at work at the Hobby Airport as an air traffic controller and didn't get home till 11 p.m. My dad's an air traffic controller and it's pretty noticeable if you're not at work. You have to, like, you have an essential job. You have to be at work. So more than 200 people testified. Yeah, he was at work. So airtight, that took prosecutors and detectives back to where the hell does candy come from? And of course, Ronald is number one suspicious dude. Um, 
What police did find out as they were looking into him is he was over $100,000 in debt. Um, Over the past 10 years, he had held over 21 different jobs, and he was currently suspected of theft at the Texas State Optical Hospital that he worked at, and he was pretty close to being fired. Um, His car was about to be repossessed, he had defaulted on several bank loans, and his house had already been repossessed. Um, The prosecutors then, you know, keep digging a little bit more, and they found out that he started taking out life insurance policies on his children um, beginning in January of 1974. He took out a $10,000 policy on Timothy and Elizabeth, and then another 20000 on each child in September of the same year, and then another $20,000 two days prior to the incident with Timothy. Um, these both totaled over $60,000, um, both you know policies on the kids, which in today's money is worth $313,000 and the amount that, that's a a hard number, (laughs) but the amount that he was in debt, um, the $100,000 is now worth over $500,000 in today's money. So this dude was pretty freaking screwed. Um, Obviously a liar, obviously a scam artist, obviously a moron who can't get his shit together. Uh, He actually called the insurance company the morning after Timothy was pronounced dead to collect on his insurance claim. He was taken in after all of this. um, He was arrested November 5th, 1974, which was, of course, five days after Timothy was pronounced dead on that Halloween night. He pled not guilty to all five counts that were brought against him, one count of capital murder and four counts of attempted murder. The trial began in Houston on May 5th, 1975. A chemical salesman actually testified against him. Um, He was one of his patients at the optician place. Um, And he testified saying that in the summer of 73, Ronald asked him about cyanide and how much would be fatal, where you can purchase it, etc. Um, obviously that's a little bit weird because that's kind of a random question to ask somebody. So this definitely jogged the, uh, chemist memories and Ronald's wife's family testified that at the funeral for Timothy, his very young nine-year-old son, he spoke about a lavish vacation that he would take with the insurance money. O'Brien's defense though was a decades-old mad poisoner urban myth, and he maintained his innocence his entire trial. Um, He was convicted... Oh, actually, in September, so a month before this happened, he went to a chemical store for cyanide, but he found out the minimum you could purchase was five pounds, so he left without any. Um, Prosecutors still don't know where he got the cyanide poison from. Um, And during the trial, pieces of plastic that would match the pixie sticks were found in his home, and there were small traces of the poison on a knife in his house as well. Um, So that little proof was enough to convict him on June 3rd, 1975. The jury took 46 minutes to convict him and 71 minutes to sentence him to death. 
I did read in one uh, article that he was originally sentenced to death by electric chair. Um, and then he ended up getting the lethal injection just because death by electric chair by the time he was killed was deemed um, cruel and unusual punishment, which, I mean, for this guy, I think it's kind of okay. But, you know. Um, so he was held in Huntsville, uh, the Huntsville State Prison, and shunned by fellow inmates <laughs> because he killed a child. A former chaplain of the prison system uh, said that he was utterly friendless, which makes me very, very happy. Um, he had four stays requested, um, stays of execution. The first date that he was to be executed on was August 8th, 1980, which, you know, five years after his conviction. Um, he appealed that. I believe the first appeal was saying that lethal injection was cruel and unusual punishment. Um, so the second date was set at May 25th, 1982. The third was set eight years after, um, eight years to the day that Timothy was murdered by his own father, 10-31-82, and the judge actually said that he would pick him up and drive him himself to the executioner. <laughs> Um, there was the Supreme Court grant of a fourth and final stay, which was March 31st, 1984, and that's when he was killed by lethal injection. Um, I'll go ahead and read his last statement because it just further affirms that he's an absolute and total piece of shit. Um, he said, what is about to transpire, transpire in a few moments is wrong. However, we as human beings do make mistakes and errors. This execution is one of those wrongs, yet does not mean our whole system of justice is wrong. Therefore, I would forgive all who have taken part in any way in my death. Also, to anyone I have offended what? in any way during my 39 years, I pray and ask your forgiveness, just as I forgive anyone who offended me in any way. And I pray and ask God's forgiveness for all of us respectively as human beings. To my loved ones, I extend my undying love. To those close to me, know in your hearts I love you one and all. God bless you all, God bless you all and may God's best blessings be always yours. Ronald C. O'Brien P.S. During my time here, I have been treated well by all TDC personnel. First off, he postal postage noted his own ending statement, like, all in his own words. And he even, Ronald O'Brien, like, shut up. Also, he didn't mention his child that he murdered. His wife has since remarried. She filed divorce from, uh, she filed for divorce during his, uh, Actually, right after he was convicted, during his trial, since he maintained his innocence and kept up this facade of a mystery man handing out poison candies, um, he and her, she visited him every day while he was being hold, held for his trial. And she said that in her heart, she knew it was him, but he was so convincing and so adamant that she really wanted to believe him. After she divorced him, um, she later remarried and her daughter, Elizabeth, only knows him as her birth father. She has had no contact with him. Um, she wanted to just before his execution, but her mother rightfully didn't allow it. Um, and she was quoted as saying, it's the end of an, um, her his conviction and death. Actually, yeah, I, I'm sorry. Um, she was quoted as saying the conviction and his death was the end of a nightmare and the beginning of a brand new beginning. 
The slate will be wiped clean and we will get on our life. And she said she misses Timothy every day, but to her ex-husband, she just feels nothing. So that is that is it. She maintains that she didn't know about the insurance policy. Oh, huh, forgot about this. She maintains that she didn't know about the insurance policies, but they did have a meeting a few weeks before he murdered their child um, to meet with an insurance adjuster about filing a claim on her and taking out oh insurance policies on her. She believes that she was the original intended victim to clear his debts. They couldn't make, they canceled the meeting because they couldn't afford the uh, insurance adjuster's fees. That's the story of the piece of shit asshole man who killed Halloween. Um, it's been said, you know, in recent years and not so recent years, you know, immediately following this and even reverberating into today that people are extra cautious, extra, I would kind of assume that this helped the trunk or treat movement, you know, like, but I asked my mom, I was like, is this why you guys, cause my parents, they would take all of our candy and there was four of us and we would go trick or treating for freaking hours. Like we always had a massive haul and they would take all of our candy and inspect every single piece of it to make sure none of the wrappers have been uh, tampered with. None of that. I remember, I I can't remember the exact types of candy. I think most lollipops for sure. But there were a lot of candies that I wasn't allowed to eat from my, my haul. Yeah. I wasn't allowed to go trick or treating growing up. I wasn't, we didn't celebrate Halloween. I don't know anything about that. Um, I thought it was interesting though, because obviously this guy is the one who kind of turned it into like this urban legend thing. It kind of weirded me out when you were like, he was claiming and basing it off of an urban legend. And so it's like, how far back does this go? You know, we thought he was the kind of main guy that spawned this whole thing and turned it razor blades into lollipops and all that shit when it was just pixie sticks. But what yeah. was it before? He's the only one who actually caused a death. Um, there have been no recorded deaths. There had been recorded instances of tiny razor blades being found into chocolate or like in chocolates and like little needles in... Um, oh, yeah like suckers or something, but the most I read from that is a kid would be pricked with the needle and like take it out of his mouth and be like, hey mom, there's a needle in here and no fatalities happen. So he killed Halloween because he tilted Timothy's head back. He gave him Kool-Aid to wash it down. Uh, okay, why Kool-Aid? Psychopaths really love Kool-Aid. Um, what did it, oh, two inches of poison. So I guess, I know you gave the inches of the actual pixie stick, but I feel like that's a lot. And also like, why didn't you just dump out the rest of the pixie stick stuff, mix it up and like put it in there? I know it obviously doesn't matter because, but maybe he just wouldn't have tasted it and maybe it wouldn't have been such a potent smell of almonds. I don't, not saying that he could have easily gotten away with this, but it was 1974. He might've been able to. I mean... How do you do that? And then how do you make the decision? I, I, I believe that he intended, he obviously gave it to other children to cover it up, but he intended for both of his little children, his five-year-old daughter, his nine-year-old son to die because he couldn't figure out how to make his wife die, like, and collect insurance on her. Like, what kind of psychopath does that? Like how bad can your life really be and how, I mean, I don't know what it's like to have my house repossessed in my car and be up to your ears in debt, but I mean, to go to that point where you're believing your own lies, even mm-hmm. on your, you know, last little letter to everyone, like mm. you at some point 
not all, but a lot of people do admit at some point to what they've done wrong in prison. And it's just like, you're so up your own ass at this point to just be like, I'm going to go on vacation, not get out of debt, but go on fucking vacation with my kids' death money. When they said almonds, I was like, oh yeah, almonds. And I started thinking about it again. And I was like, oh no, it's cashews that I know about. So I guess there's something in tree nuts, but... I don't. I think almonds is just the like casual smell. I don't think it has anything to do with tree nuts. Um, I read. I did read something where um, I think two days before the thirty first, or what would that be? The twenty ninth. I guess the twenty eighth. Probably. I don't know if it's two whole days. But anyways, um, they advised against him taking out an additional. 20,000 on each child. I just feel like, I mean, all around, like everything, like it shows that he's a, like you said, a very self absorbed, selfish person and also a grade A moron. It just shows how self absorbed he was that he thought he could outsmart everyone and the cops and he could just get away with murdering his own baby. Ugh, so that's the, uh, that's the man who killed Halloween in 1974, Ronald Clark O'Brien. But the last name we're going to say is Timothy O'Brien, sweet angel. Okay, so we're going to do my murder. I'm going to precedent this case by saying it kind of has some unique twists and turns and some like really random stuff that happens. I read about it and thought this can't be real just because of how ridiculous I feel like it sounded. Okay, so October 1981, Sister Angela Martinez found the body of her fellow convent nun, 76-year-old. And I don't know how to pronounce this. It's either Tadia or Tadia. I don't know. Whatever. Sister Benz. We'll just go with that. So Sister Benz hadn't shown up for her morning chapel service, so Sister Martinez decided to go and do a room check of her friend. Uh, Her door, which normally remained ajar uh, due to Sister Benz's poor hearing, had been shut. And according to Sister Martinez, seeing her fellow nun laying in her bed with her arms outstretched beside her, it looked like she had fallen and then died in her sleep. So after seeing this, four other nuns wrapped up Sister Benz in a sheet in sort of an acknowledgement and respect for her death. And they also stupidly cleaned up some blood spots on the floor. Uh, that they believed, yeah, came from her fall. Um, Another nun, Sister Florentine, later discovered a broken window at the convent and called the police to report a break-in. She said that she had thought to mention Sister Benz's death when the police arrived, but hesitated. She said that she and several other nuns kind of felt uneasy, but they all just kind of kept thinking it was a natural death and really didn't put the break-in and the death of their friend together. So they just kind of let it go, yeah. So during that time, officers there that were uh, that were there to investigate the win- window incident overheard the conversation about Sister Benz's death, and an investigation into her passing would bring about one of the biggest murder and scandal stories in the city of Amarillo, like ever. Um, they would later discover that she had been strangled, raped, and beaten until she finally died on the early mornings, early morning hours of Halloween. Um, okay, so Amarillo police wanted to get this case underway and um, immediately sought out to find a suspect. They interviewed several people, including some men who had come over from the uh, who had come over from Cuba in the uh, Mariel boat lift. I wasn't entirely sure what that meant, so I looked it up. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right, but uh, this boat lift was basically a mass immigration of Cubans who traveled from Cuba's harbor to the United States. Unfortunately, though, it was later discovered that the majority, not majority, but a good number of the people who immigrated over to the U.S. from this had been released from Cuban jails and mental health facilities. So just keep that in mind. 
Mm-hmm. One of the first suspects that they had was Fernando Flores. He was a Cuban refugee that fit the description given by a witness outside the convent that evening and was later identified um, in a photo lineup as well. Unfortunately, though, further DNA and forensic testing wouldn't have any matches to Flores, which was a big blow to the DA's self-esteem and their sort of plan to arrest someone immediately. Mm-hmm. But what do you know? Luck would strike sooner than they thought. This is where it just gets so ridiculous. Bubbles, the clairvoyant. Yeah. She would personally reach out to an Amarillo newspaper and describe who she believed was the true killer of Sister Ben's. Now, I was kind of confused, too, because why did she choose the name Bubbles? Um, Bubbles are actually supposed to have some weird significant meaning in the psychic realm. It's supposed to mean like hopes and dreams or something. So I guess maybe that's why she chose it. But she claims in her vision slash dream, he was a teenage male, average height, an olive skin. He had dark hair and an Abe Lincoln face with a large nose and ears. During the uh, attack, she said he wore an Afro-type wig and his face was half black and half white. Uh, and he was somehow associated with the name Clyde. She also said the killer lived in a small white frame house with dirty hardwood floors. And this house was located on the same street as the convent, which was nor- which was Northeast 18th Street. And the house that this person lived in faced the convent. Um, A few days after this press release with Bubbles about the crime, Amarillo PD arrested a 17-year-old Johnny Frank Garrett for the rape and murder of Sister Tadia Benz. His home fit the exact description of Bubbles' vision, as well as his appearance, age, and even his dog's name was Clyde. What's even more interesting is that his fingerprints were actually found on Sister Benz's headboard and a butter knife uh, found in her room at the convent. Just wait. (laughs) According to the police, after the release of Fernando Flores, an officer remembered seeing Johnny (laughs) beating some bushes with a stick. Uh, Yeah. When he... We laugh now, but it's actually kind of sad. When he saw the officer, he ran into the house uh, or his house. The behavior was so suspicious that the police decided to check his prints against those found at the scene. Just, you know, casually. Why not, right? Uh, One of the many... Or, excuse me, of the identified... Wow. Of the... (laughs) of the many unidentified prints at the crime scene johnny's prints matched two of them so like i said the headboard and the butter knife more evidence would show pubic hairs resembling that of johnny's and allegedly there was a steak knife found at the convent and it would match steak knives at johnny's home although neither the steak knife or butter knife were used in the murder of sister ben's but you know who cares right Uh, according to the police johnny garrett would confess to the murder not once but twice they claim the first time was during an interrogation, but the the officers came up with this confession and typed it out themselves. It wasn't handwritten or in his own words, but they still claimed he confessed during this time. Good news is that he would refuse to sign the paper confession the police would give him, but we all know that that doesn't always matter. Uh, the other time he supposedly confessed was reported by a jailhouse snitch saying Johnny confessed to him. He sounds super reliable. Um, all pretty big inconsistencies straight away. And another, another great moment is when the pathologist hired by Amarillo to do the examination for Sister Ben's, this is like too good right now. Uh, he confirmed that semen had been found in a vaginal wash, but there had been too little semen to test with the equipment he had available. And since no one asked him to keep it, he disposed of the sample that he gathered. Of course he did, because he's a professional. 
Johnny would actually testify at his trial. Uh, This is what he says is his true statement, and this is what he had actually confessed to in his interrogation, not the crap that the cops had written down for him. So he would claim that he... Uh, had broken into the convent to steal rosaries and other items earlier in the day and that the butter knife was used to pry open the cabinet they were kept in. He believed that he must have left the fingerprints on the headboard when he reached across Sister Benz's bed to grab the cross hanging on the wall. A fellow nun would later testify for the prosecution that no one could have sneaked in at that time without being seen, no cabinets were kept locked, Sister Benz never kept a cross above her bed, and that no items were missing from the convent. A little confusing for me because they did report a break-in, and I know that doesn't mean that items were missing from the convent, but, I mean, it kind of corroborates his story about him personally breaking in. But, anyway. Uh, The DA took no mercy on Johnny during his trial, saying, quote, How did several of your pubic hairs get in Sister Benz's room? Did they fall out down your legs, over your shoes and socks, onto the floor? And more things of that nature. I feel like this type of like accusatory practice of law is commonly used by lawyers who have like little defense or like know their defense is bullshit. Um, (laughs) I wrote in here, I was like, I get the whole point is to be accusatory, but at least have something to back it up. And it's not uh, just a juvenile dig at the defendant. Mm -hmm. In some cases, I'm sure that probably would feel good. Like, quote, All right, OJ, you're just saying that the knife crawled out of its drawer in the kitchen and climbed up on Nicole and Ron's backs and slit their throats. You see my point. All right, so a little bit about Johnny Garrett. Uh, This was a report made by Amnesty International on his case. Super important people. Yeah, they mainly focus on, like, justice for, like, people in the prison system and stuff. So um, as a youth, Garrett was raped by his stepfather, who then essentially pimped him out to other men for sex. From the age of 14, he was forced to perform bizarre and sexual acts and participate in pornographic homosexual films. He was first introduced to alcohol and other drugs by members of his own family at the age of 10 and subsequently indulged in the serious substance abuse involving brain-damaging materials such as paint thinner and amphetamines. Garrett was regularly beaten and on one occasion was put on a uh, the burner of a stove, resulting in severe scarring. Uh, information on Johnny's abusive upbringing and mental health problems were, of course, not made available to the jury. Oh, mistake, mistake, mistake. Uh, which I can see as a little biased due to the severity of his experiences, but at the same time, I think it could have given more of a better character witness. And maybe his defense did try to submit that, but it was sure. deemed inadmissible yeah. or whatever. Um, according to three mental health experts who claimed they examined him between 1976 and 1982, Garrett was extremely mentally impaired, chronically psychotic, and brain damaged as the result of severe head injuries he sustained as a child. He suffered from paranoid delusions, including a belief that the lethal injection would not kill him. One of the experts described Garrett's cases, case as, quote, one of the most virulent histories of abuse and neglect I have ever encountered in over 28 years of practice. Um, multiple items of evidence supporting Johnny's innocence surfaced, but were not shown to the jury, uh, such as pubic and head hair that didn't match Johnny's shoe and fingerprints that didn't match him either, as well as a bloody t-shirt that didn't belong to Johnny. And finally they actually found blood on an exit door, but it was actually never tested. They just like didn't do anything with it. There's also a testimony given, but not in front of the jury by a boy stating that he had actually gone to the convent with Johnny two days prior to steal jewelry. Um, so I don't know what's the point of a testimony if the people deciding his future don't hear it, but I don't know. I feel like everything that the defense, like 
kind of hypothetically brought to the courtroom was just turned away. Uh, Regardless of the evidence and testimony, Johnny Garrett was sentenced to death in September 1982 and would claim innocence until he was finally put to death 10 years later on February 11th, 1992 for the murder of Sister Benz. This is where it gets kind of interesting. Actually, it gets really interesting later. Uh, It is rumored that Johnny had written a final goodbye letter to the people involved in his conviction. In this letter, he quote, cursed many of the jurors, lawyers, and witnesses contributing to his death. I'll read a few things that occurred to the people mentioned in his letter. Uh, Juror Novella Sumner fell down a flight of stairs and died a few days later of complications. Juror Nathan Shackelford's daughter died from an accidental gunshot wound to the head, and then his sister was run over and killed by a drunk driver. Uh, Johnny's trial lawyer, Bill Coleus, died of pancreatic cancer. Officer Walt Yerger died of leukemia. Reporter Kathy Jones, who reported to NBC on his case, died in an airplane crash. Medical examiner Ralph Erdman was convicted of numerous felonies for falsifying autopsy reports. His medical license was revoked and he was sent to prison. His wife died of uh, pancreatic cancer. Uh, This guy, Watley, he's the jailhouse snitch who testified against Garrett for a... He got a reduced sentence for testifying to that. He committed suicide. Carol Moore, uh, Garrett's school teacher who testified against him at trial, also committed suicide. The DA committed suicide. His daughter also hung herself a few years later. And uh, just one more. One of Garrett's many appellate attorneys, Jeff Blackburn, lost his wife when she committed suicide. And then his son was accidentally, this is awful, locked inside a hot car in Houston and is permanently brain damaged. So those are just a few. That's not even like half of the list. A lot more. But I figured that's enough. (laughs) So kind of interesting. Um... This is the kind of redeeming factor of this story. So more curiosities arise when I read that Sister Benz wasn't the only older female that had been assaulted in Amarillo as of late. So almost 10 elderly women had been beaten and raped in the past few months ever since the refugees from Cuba had arrived. And 12 years after Johnny's execution in 2004, a DNA test came back with a match between Sister Benz and another woman, Narni Bryson, who was killed in the same manner just four months before Sister Benz. The DNA belonged to, uh, I'm not going to say this right, Leoncio Perez Rueda. He had been released with a warning two weeks before Sister Benz's murder for peeping in the window of yet again another elderly woman. Uh, Several months after he was arrested, Rueda gave an interview to, uh, this guy's kind of a funny name, Jesse Quackenbush, an attorney hired uh, by the Garrett family to clear Johnny's name after his execution. In that interview, Rueda uh, admitted to sexually assaulting Narni Bryson and a nun. He claimed, however, he was forced to rape the women by none other than Fernando Flores, his longtime friend and occasional roommate. Rueda had been currently staying with a Catholic family at the time of the murders and had visited the convent and church often. He said that Sister Benz had given him a t-shirt not long before her death, possibly even the one found at the scene. And then in January of 2005, Rueda pled guilty to the murder of Narni Bryson in return for his plea. He received a 45-year sentence with the possibility of parole. Uh, Johnny Garrett was most likely framed by Amarillo PD after hearing the incident from the patrol officer who saw him outside that night acting strangely, and they fed the information to Bubbles. I believe that they found Fernando Flores as a dead end, and they needed a new lead uh, fast to appease the public. Um, I think kind of think that the DA did do a test of the blood and DNA found at the scene and they knew it didn't match Johnny Garrett, but they went ahead with his trial and really never brought up 
the match between Nani Bryson and Sister Benz. Um, I read that people believe that the state did not pursue the death penalty in the case of Leoncio because even though they had a DNA match between him and the semen taken from Narnie Bryson, um, they feared reopening Sister Benz's case. Most of the law enforcement attorneys and politicians involved have been proven to have ulterior motives when it came to trying Johnny Garrett when they could have just charged the correct guy much earlier on with a little more effort. So this is cool. The lawyer I mentioned earlier, Jesse Quackenbush, he would actually later go on to make a documentary about this case. The town and Johnny's family in around like 2008, 2009 called The Last Word. His story would later be turned into a movie just uh, and released just um, last year. The movie focuses more on like the horror aspect of the case and what happens to the people on his cursed list. The uh, I remember the scene of the teacher who kills herself. She like is, I don't even know if this really happened, but she like is yelling at her class and she takes two pencils and kind of puts them up her nose a little bit and then slams her head on the table and like shoves them through her head. Cool. Yeah, it was awesome. Um, Jesse argues that Johnny was failed by a dysfunctional family life, incompetent trial lawyers, politicized judges and district attorneys, zealous media, and lazy and incompetent appellate lawyers. Um, He's quoted saying there was so many multi-system failures happening at once, then ultimately he paid the price for all those failures. In 2004, Jesse sent letters to the 47th district attorney at the time, which was Rebecca King, and to the city of Amarillo asking that evidence in Johnny's case be subjected to modern testing methods, and his requests were denied. So basically, Texas still won't exonerate him, even though they know he didn't do it. But anyway, that was the weird roller coaster case of Johnny Frank Garrett. Not really many questions and theories, just more kind of like opinions. But I feel like wrongfully convicted cases for me are just kind of like the unsolved cases. Like they're so annoying, but really interesting too. Um, I didn't watch the documentary, so I just watched the movie and I feel like maybe my opinion would differ if I had seen the more like real story, not just like the Hollywood story, but I still think that, you know, he, you have jilted and prejudiced, you know, district attorney, police department, church staff, townspeople, like you have all these people judging him for his past and think that he's just this drug addict and they probably know nothing about him. And if they do, they probably still judge him thinking it's his fault. And, you know, instead of arresting the weird guy who lives around the corner, why don't you like check your facts and yeah sometimes it is the weird guy but just because your first lead didn't pan out doesn't mean you just hire a fucking medium to create a suspect for you he had no prior criminal record like i don't know how this happened literally it's the cops doing a shitty job not wanting to pay attention to not wanting to do their job they just want to wrap up a case so they look good and they get more money and of course you find a kid who has such a shitty upbringing and no support system and nothing. Like, they wouldn't bring that up against some upper middle class, like, white kid. They're going to pick a olive-skinned kid yeah. who with some mental deficiencies. Like, It could be because of all the, unfortunately, all the drugs that he's taken. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So it may not just be a mental deficiency by birth or by head injury, but it he he clearly was stealing stuff to get money for possibly most likely his drug habit which is unfortunate in itself but it doesn't mean that he killed anyone i i hate 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 i mean i think they're very important to talk about but i hate wrongful convictions because it just shows you how screwed up our justice system really is i think that the justice system like horribly failed johnny garrett but most importantly that failed sister benz 
Of course, it wouldn't be us if we didn't have some sort of technical difficulty, so the closing that we recorded got all scratchy and weird, super weird sounding. So um, anyways, I just want to thank you all so much for listening. We both hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, Once again, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe if you guys are on iTunes, and be sure to check out our social media for photos on these cases. And remember, links to our sources will also be put in the show notes if y'all want some more information, and we'll be back next week with more Texas true crime. And if anyone's listening, happy Halloween.